You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. You know a series is needed when the video that sets up the series ends and everybody claps for the video. Well, I wasn't expecting that. I want to welcome you to Kingsway this morning. Welcome, everybody. And uh, I want to welcome everybody at home watching online. There are more and more of you. Uh, sometimes even people sitting out here in a foyer drinking coffee. We want to welcome you this morning also. And we're just glad that you're all here today. Apparently, we need this series more than I thought we did before I planned it. This series came to me, actually, because one day I was listening to a podcast, a terrible podcast. I don't even want to mention the podcast. And I listened to it, and the person on the podcast was being interviewed by another person, and their marriage basically fell apart because one of the couples, one of the person in the couple, and this couple, was unfaithful for a significant amount of time. And then they basically said, after they're sharing that they're still married, they basically said the reason they're still married is because there was one thing that every marriage needs to succeed. You know what it is? Somebody said Jesus. Yes, but the application of Jesus, grace, grace. And I'll just tell you right now, the entire series as we're going through this together is really all about how God has given us his grace and therefore we are perfectly equipped to give it to others. And I need your grace right here, right now for a second because what I need to do is take a hard left turn then turn around and come right back to where I am, and this is all on purpose, but it's because if I don't do this, then somebody's gonna get missed, and I'm gonna hear about it later, and I'm gonna say, hey, I need grace, all right? Here's the grace. So, if you didn't get a letter in the mail, if you haven't been on the church's webpage or Facebook page, if you weren't here last Sunday, if you aren't connected to the right people and heard the rumor mill, then you're hearing what I'm about to tell you for the first time, and you're gonna be like, what? Why am I always last to the party? We've done our best to get the word out, but we know that there are people, maybe even a significant number, we don't know, who haven't heard a word. So, real quick, right now, the entire church is praying. Because on June the 15th, Kingsway Christian School is coming to us to let us know of their interest or desire in potentially purchasing the entire campus here on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones. As I have said, and will continue to say many, many, many times, no decisions have made, been made. Many, many things have to come to, to order and come into place. All we know is on the 15th, as KCS will let us know of their intent to do it or not to do it, which is fine. Either way, it's fine. They've approached Covenant Christian School as a potential partner, but even then, that's just another kind of thing. Everybody keeps asking all these questions. And here's the thing, lots of questions. So if you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, ah, What? I know, I know, we said this last week, we told our core leaders two weeks ago, we sent a letter home in the mail to as many people as we could find in our computer system, so you need to let us know you're in the computer system. The way that we know you're in our computer system is you either have kids you check in on a regular basis, that tells us you're alive and you exist, or you serve in a ministry, or you're in a small group, or you've been on a mission trip, those are the only ways our computers know that you exist. So if you come on a regular basis, but we don't know you exist, we don't know you exist, so we can't send you a letter. So if you're hearing this like, why didn't I get a letter? That's why you didn't get a letter. So 
No secrets, nothing's being hidden. And in fact, this coming Wednesday, we're having a meeting just for you to be able to ask any question that you want. And we will have a small presentation, answer questions until we can't answer them anymore. And then we'll come back on Saturday and we'll do it again. So you can go to kingswaychurch.org slash Avon Campus. You will find all of the information that I have for you at this time there. But then come together and we'll ask questions and give answers and sit and talk and pray. And we'll just continue working on this until God either moves or says no. Either one is totally fine with all of us. We just want God's will. Now, thank you for the grace to be able to do that this morning. Let's go ahead and have a very quick prayer and we'll transition into what I want to say to you today about marriage, which apparently you need really bad. (laughs) Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for grace. I thank you for grace because grace is a game changer. It's a game changer in our lives and our hearts. It's a game changer, Father, because we all need it and we all need to give it away. So Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, all God's people pray. Amen. Now, it kind of ruins my opening question if you've got the outline you're following online. But there is one thing you need. If you were to get it, it would change your life. And it's grace. Now, before I can tell you how grace applies to all relationships, especially marriage, you need to first understand how the Bible defines grace. Because in order to really apply a word, you've got to understand the word. The word grace is literally the Greek word charis, or charis in Greek. And it means goodwill, loving kindness, or favor. Goodwill, loving kindness, or favor. We will actually find this word throughout the New Testament, and it's applied in different contexts depending on what the context means. Here's why. When I was in Bible college, they taught this little phrase, context is king. Context is king. Meaning, I can't just look at what a word means. I have to look at what the author meant when he used the word. This is Relationships 101. This will change everything for you if you would just practice that. We live in a day and age between Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, news articles, media. We love to take what somebody says, take the most extreme interpretation of what they said, get offended by it, and then act accordingly. Right? Does this not explain every fight that you've had with your spouse in the last few months. Yesterday, my wife and I were coming off a very busy and stressful week. We were supposed to be on vacation last weekend, but it didn't happen because we had some things going on around here that I'm like, gosh, I need to be here at church on Sunday. So I was here at church on Sunday, delayed my vacation. Then my little guy, my youngest, got sick, and right now my father-in-law, whose house we're going to, he's dealing with a very serious case of leukemia, and he's fighting it with chemo, and so it's very, he can't be around anything right now. So we had to wait an extra couple days while he got better. Then we finally got down to Kentucky. We're already tired of stress and kind of running on fumes, and he and I have to sleep at Rachel's brother's house overnight Because his germs can't really be in the house. And so like anytime he's at granddaddy's house, he's got to be outside. So now it's constant stress. We're not really on a a united front. We're on a divided front. We're dealing with a sick family member. We got all kinds of things going on. Rachel's dad, vacation stuff. We're busy all day long. We yesterday decided to go to Kentucky Kingdom. We spend all day in Kentucky Kingdom. But my wife, and I love her to death. So honey, you're home watching online for any reason you don't normally. Lots of grace because I didn't get your permission here. My wife has her cell phone on her, but she doesn't have it turned up where she can hear it. And we're at two separate parts of the park, and I need the sunscreen that she has on her, and I got a kid who's dressed and ready to get in the water, 
and he's yelling at me nonstop because I won't let him in the water, and I'm keeping him in the shade, and he thinks I'm the mean dad. And I'm texting and calling and texting and calling, and my texts apparently start to sound a little more irritated. <laughs> you know, the first one has a smiley face. The second one has like the big shocked eyes. The third one has nothing. And I don't know what I would have put in a fourth one. But she comes to me and she's like, why are you so upset? I'm dealing with a very frustrated two kids. I couldn't find you. Where was your phone? Now, I'm interpreting the worst. There is a long history of my wife and her cell phone. She'll go out with a friend, forget her cell phone at the house, not come home till 2 a.m. I don't know if she's dead. I don't know what's happening. Now, we've talked about all of those, but in that moment yesterday, what do you think happened? A lack of information allowed me to insert the worst about this woman that I love. And then what I did was not act with much grace. And she felt it at every turn. Why are you being so frustrated right now? It's hot out here. Have I told you that? <laughs> the kid's not. He's screaming. He won't leave me alone. Now, this is all fresh fodder for a sermon. And I'm telling you all the way home, we are living my sermon. And I am so glad <laughs> that we produce fresh sermon illustrations on a regular basis. <laughs> Marriage is easy when it was the two of you pursuing each other and it was all lovey-dovey, and it was all fun, and you, the guy, is doing everything you can to woo her, and she's doing everything she can to be mysterious and fun, and then the two of you live under the same roof for any significant length of time, and you quickly realize just how desperately you need grace. You need grace, because that person you married is messed up. And they hid all their messed up from you. You had no idea. No idea. But guess what? Dirty little secret. The person they married is messed up too. <laughs> and we know it instinctively. But we don't act appropriately. Now listen, if you're visiting with us today, what I need to do is I need to set the stage. Because grace is not ignoring a problem. It's not. Well, there are times to overlook offenses. The Bible encourages that. But if our modus of operandi, if our MO is simply that we ignore problems, guess what? It's going to snowball on you. You're going to have major problems someday. So that's not grace. Grace is not getting everybody to agree with you so that there's peace in the home. That's controlling. So what is grace? Let's take a look at just one passage that tells us a little bit what grace is. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. I'll unpack all this for you in a second. For all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified 
freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Many of you have heard of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I wanted to put the verse before and the verse after because it provides context. What Paul is trying to do in Romans chapter 3, he's been building his case for two chapters leading up to this as he's trying to provide the case that says, you, you who consider yourself spiritual, you need grace. You, not them, you. Romans chapter 1 is his argument about why the entire world will be held accountable to God for its rebellion and what we call sin against him. What that means, very quickly, is this. God is perfect in every way. He's perfectly love. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly uh, good. He's perfectly free. And when we take all of these things about God together, he very easily looked at us and said, I have created you in my image, and I expect you to act like I would act, to think like I think, and to live like I live. Except Romans 1 is Paul's way of showing, and oh, by the way, we have not done it. We have fallen from God, and we have fallen far, and we have fallen hard. And his whole point in Romans 1 is the further we got from God, the more our minds got darkened towards who God is and what he wants from us and what he wants in this world and what he wants in our relationships. And so God said, fine, if you don't want me, if you want to be your own God and do it your own way, have at it. But go all the way. Get it all. Go ahead. Chase it and find the emptiness that's there. Romans 2, and really beginning of Romans 3, Paul pivots and says, and I'm not just talking about the Romans, who he's talking about Romans 1, I'm talking about all of you, all of you. He says, you're no better. And then he goes on and gives this long list, and you've done this, 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 and yet you point a finger and say, yeah, but we're not them. And that's when he makes his way over Romans 3. Because see, what Paul's dealing with in the church are Jews who've had the law of God, which is good, but it didn't change the heart. And the Gentiles, who've been far from God and outside of God's will, and they've been living lives that are very, very, very darkened towards God. And Paul is trying to say, and Jesus Christ came a game changer. Because when grace entered in, God didn't wait for us to become perfect for him to set us free. God didn't wait for us to put our lives back together, for God to come in and give us wisdom. God didn't wait for us to finally become who he wanted us to become, for him to pour out his love and his mercy and his kindness. No, God in his infinite mercy came down and gave us the grace that we needed to get where he wanted us to be in Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can clap for God on that. That's why he says we are justified freely. The word justified is a, is a law phrase. It's a concept. Imagine yourself in a courtroom and the, the prosecutor has built this case against you and it's piles and piles and piles. It's everything you've ever done that's tr gone against the heart of God. You got this pile of stuff. And Jesus comes in and he says, do you believe that I died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that I am the prophesied son of God, the Messiah, the Christ? Do you accept me now as your Lord and your Savior? And if you can answer yes to that, 
Jesus walks over and in his own blood writes justified on that huge stack that the prosecutor has against you. And this is what the Bible calls grace. Theologians like to use this phrase for grace. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Unmerited means you didn't earn it and you can't do anything to improve it. Your best days don't make it more so in your life and your worst days don't make it less so in your life. But what is the thing it makes no more or no less of? Favor. Because of Jesus Christ, God is for you in every possible way. He wants you to win. He wants you to succeed. But what he ultimately means by that is he's transforming you into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that God is overly concerned with you getting a bigger, better, nicer job, house, car, or you name it. Those things come to those who are fully surrendered to God many times because they're not worried about it. And they know how to get those things and to give them away and leverage them for God's glory and God's good on the earth. But if what you think is, whoa, I know, I believe in Jesus so I can get what I want, then you're missing it. And don't be surprised if God withholds it from you. Because he loves you too much to let you settle for something less than himself. Unmerited favor. This is exactly what James is going to. Now, James is a powerful story in the Bible because he's the um, half-brother of Jesus. They share the same mother and Mary, but they have a different daddy. James's daddy would be Joseph. Jesus' daddy would be God. So they're half-brothers. But J James writes in James chapter 1, verse 5, if you need wisdom, you got something going on in your life, you got something going on in your marriage, you got something going on in your home, you got something going on at work, you made a financial decision, a problem, you're not sure what to do with it, then you know what to do? You ask God. And he will generously give you wisdom. And James goes on and he says, and he will not find fault. God's not going to sit up there and say, well, idiot, you earned this. I mean, look at that. Can you believe you married that person? Can you believe you did that thing? Look at the mess you've made. No, it says, God will simply give you wisdom and he will not find fault. Why? Because it's unmerited favor. God is for you. See, when grace is received, then grace can be given. Make sense? Until you receive God's unmerited favor for yourself, you're not ever going to be able to give it away to somebody else. But once you have fully embraced the fact that you are broken, you are not perfect, but that's not an excuse to act a broken way, it's a reason to explain your behavior at times and to draw you close to the Father who's not going to put you at arm's length. He's going to draw you close, not look for faults in you, and embrace you and say, I love you. I am for you. And when you do that, then you have the ability to come near those God has given you, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your neighbors, and draw near and say, I love you. God has been so gracious towards me. Let me be gracious towards you. The New Testament church got this. In fact, take a look with me. Acts chapter four. The church has just begun. It, it, they don't even know what they're doing yet. They have like no structure in place, but they start living like this. Acts chapter four, verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Notice what was that powerfully at work in them. The what? The grace. The unmerited favor of God was so powerful in them. The new believers, the very first church, they understood what God had done in Jesus Christ, and it started to change them. It made them see the world in a completely different way. Instead of all of their money being about, how do I get more? All their money became about, you know what? I don't care. God loves me. What do I need to do with what I have? Okay, so apply that same principle to your marriage. What is it you're withholding from the person that God has given to you that would dramatically change the relationship? Forgiveness? Patience? Kindness? Provision? Protection? Love? Trust, time, intimacy. What are you withholding from them? And maybe in your own heart, you've got this great rationale and logic. I'm justified in acting this way. I'm justified in living this way because. Now just pause that for a second. Is God treating you the same way? Is God forgiving you when you come to him and ask? Is God being kind towards you even when you don't deserve it? Is God being patient with you while you grow through this thing you're dealing with? Is God giving you wisdom and insight even when you really have made a mess of things? Is God protecting you and providing for you in the meantime? And the answer in all of these is what? Yes. So freely you have received, freely you can give. See, when you understand the true grace of God and just how all-encompassing it really is, it actually fuels you to try harder. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, before Paul knew Jesus, Paul, he was out to get Christians. Now, he'll tell you it was zeal. He was so zealous for God that he was out arresting Christians. He's seen literally uh, overseeing the death and the stoning and the killing of Christians. I don't know if some of you knew that about Paul. He is really, really zealous for the righteousness of God and these Christians to go away because they're ruining the faith. Then one day, Paul is on his way to Damascus, and a light shines down from heaven, and Jesus starts to speak to him and says, Paul, actually his name at the time was Saul, in case you look it up later, but he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul stops, and he's like, who are you, Jesus? Now, why did God pick Paul? 
you probably have a thought in your head. Well, he knew the law really well. Uh, he's smart. You know, he's a hard worker. He's dedicated. Apparently, Paul isn't married or has kids, so he'd have all of his time to give to serving the Lord. He's a really good candidate. That's not what Paul says. Paul's own testimony about himself is that he is the chief of sinners. His testimony of himself, and I'm quoting, is he is the worst of the worst of the worst. There's nobody in the faith, there's nobody outside the faith worse than him. Because Paul has come to this desperate understanding of his need for God. Of that he had no reason for God to choose him. There was nothing in him that was special or unique or powerful or amazing. But that Jesus, in his grace, chose Paul to be an instrument that God would use to do things on this earth. See, until you understand God's grace for you, it'll be impossible for you to give to somebody else. Because in your mind, you'll always be justified in your actions of why you're so great and they're so messed up. That's why Paul goes on and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. He's talking about all these different servants out there. Yet not I. But the grace of God that was with me. You've got Paul in this moment in 1 Corinthians here, 15. He's struggling because this church that he has given his heart to, his life to, he has poured everything into, and they won't trust him. They won't believe in him. They keep following after other people and discrediting Paul's name, and it breaks his heart. He's like, I've done everything I can. Remember when I was with you, I did these things. I did everything I could so that you would love me, that you would trust me, and I feel like at every turn, I'm giving my best to you, and you aren't receiving me. But instead of defending himself, look, I'm great, I'm awesome, he goes on and he says, look, I've outworked all these other people you're pointing to. However, it was never me. There's always grace. Why is that important? Because Paul had some really bad days. He was shipwrecked, starved, beaten, imprisoned, exhausted, sleepless nights, depleted. Literally one time left for dead. They beat him so bad. He got up, went back into the city, kept doing his work. He can literally say, nobody's worked harder at this than I have. But he can also say, it was never me in the first place. I wanted to quit. But grace wouldn't let me. Maybe you need to be like Paul in your marriage today. Maybe there's some of you that really want to quit. But grace won't let you. Maybe there's some of you that aren't that far down the road. You're much closer. But the reality is you're tired. This person's patterns irritate the snot out of you. You just wish they'd keep their cell phone on and loud enough <laughs> to hear you and respond to all of your needs at the drop of a dime. But if you're feeling frustrated towards this person, let me just take a guess for a minute. You've lost sight of grace. Because grace fuels you to try 
harder. Grace pushes you when you feel like you have nothing left to give. Grace reminds you that at one point, though you may have used different words, you said, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I do. And sometimes we have to be reminded that we made those promises in the first place. Listen, you might be the cause of the pain in your relationship right now. You might be the person who needs to give grace to get over the pain the other person has caused. I am not advocating, again, for ignoring problems. I'm not advocating for dismissing rampant and destructive sin. I'm only advocating that we give to others what God has so freely given to us in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Grace from God is the promise that your worst day is still covered by God's best day. And again, Corinthians, this time though, it's in uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing another letter to this church that he loves. And he says this in verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you hear that? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's argument, in case you don't know the whole thing, I recommend you read it, but it might be a little confusing if you don't know how to read Paul's language. Paul, right before this, is talking about how God has blessed him. He's been through hardships and all kinds of things, but God has blessed him. He's been called up to the third heavens. He's seen some things that nobody else has seen. God allowed him to actually get a view of the inner heaven world, and it blew Paul's mind. And Paul came back, and God gave him a thorn in his side. We don't know what it means. Is it a temptation to sin? Some people think it's a sickness. But Paul feels like he can't effectively do the ministry that God has called him to do because of this sickness or disease that he has. And nobody knows. The strongest argument I've ever heard is that it's Paul's pride. Because of the things that he's been able to do, because of the things that God's allowed him to see and experience, he's got this temptation to think that he's amazing now. And Paul keeps begging God, take this away from me. God, take this away from me. And God says, no. Please, God, I love you. I don't want to deal with this thing. I could serve you better if you would change my situation. No. My grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. How? Because see, when you are weakest, 
God is strong. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, whatever seems insurmountable, whatever you don't know how to proceed forward with, you could just come to God and say, God, I don't know. The only path forward that I could see at this time is this. God will say, stick with me. Because when you feel like you have nothing left, I have so much more to give. Do you need to give some forgiveness? I have more forgiveness to give you that you could pour more out. Do you need some more patience? I've got more patience to give you so that you could pour some more out. Do you need more strength because you're tired and weary? I have more strength to give you so that you can pour out. Do you need more love? I've got so much more love to give you so that you can pour out. Oh, that we would come to God and find his grace sufficient for us in our time of need. What I want to do right now is take us into a time of communion. And listen, this is a perfect communion time. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know where you are in relationship to possibly your spouse. Listen, if you're widowed or single in the room, whether it's divorced or never been married, this is a phenomenal time for you to still come to God. Paul was single. A phenomenal time for you to come to God and get what you need right now and thank God that his unmerited favor is with you. But listen, if you're married right now, marriage sometimes can be hard. And what I wanna encourage you to do is if you are in the room with your spouse, I want you to pull them close to you, grab their hand, put your arm around them, whatever it is, and pray a prayer of blessing over them during this communion time. Now, you may not feel comfortable praying. No worries. You're just going to say words like this. You ready? God, would you bless my spouse? And we thank you that your grace is enough for us. Bless my spouse. And we thank you that your grace is enough for us. It'll be the beginning of something beautiful or the continuation of something powerful. But don't let the moment pass by. Use this time to draw into your father and say, I need your grace over me so profoundly. And if you have more to say, say it to him now. And as you take that bread and you take that juice, you remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, which made God's grace available to you. I'll start a prayer and then I'll hand it over to you. Father, your grace is sufficient for me. We thank you, God, that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So like Paul, let us boast all the more in our weakness and our hardships and our struggles. Because God, when we hang on to our faith in the midst of our hardships and in the midst of our struggles, what grows in us, God, is character. What grows in us is perseverance. What grows in us is Christ-likeness. So God, may your grace do its work in us that we might freely give to others what we desperately need from you. Jesus.